the project Kuwait learn all right so in today's episode this is a follow-up conversation to my interview with Dr. Saad on diabetes in Kuwait so we are joined with Dr. Neil Coffey, who is going to talk to us about the relationship between what is personal responsibility and what is uh, government policy responsibility and where those two concepts meet when it comes to preventing diabetes. And the boys are back today. Kuwait silent killer the right there. With the dad. Yeah. <laughs> Might kill Liam in this one. <laughs> <laughs> I might find out I have diabetes because I eat a lot of sugar, yes. oh which is scary. Which is really <laughs> scary. The facts in this one are really scary. Like it's a, uh, it's 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 a deep episode. It's it's hardcore. Yeah, Definitely we, one of the more serious ones that we've done. We get into it a little bit with science and everything like that. But actually, if you can stomach going through the science, listen listening to it, listen to it a couple of times, and yeah, you'll find out some some scary facts. But hopefully, some things that will change your uh, change your life and change your habits. And everybody, put down the kanafa for this one. Stop with the sugar and the chai. All right, like it's it's serious. Like you gotta, we you really gotta pay attention to what is said in this episode, especially the facts about how it's gonna really hit our economy sooner or later. I mean, that's the scariest part for me. Ten years, if you're paying so much out for uh, the healthcare industry within Kuwait, it's 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 scary facts. It's yeah. pretty scary. Yeah. Definitely where your where your money is going to be spent thinking about that. If you would rather spend your money on experiences, you know, life experiences versus healthcare costs, that's something to definitely pay attention to. Um, we're, I think we're getting a little bit better at understanding, you know, like reaching for candy bars and, and soda. I think everybody is at this point kind of aware of the dangers that those things pose. Um, one of the other things that we touch on a little bit in this episode that we can get into more in, in other episodes is uh, where sugar is hidden. Um, knowing that people are becoming a little bit more health conscious and, you know, worried about diabetes and things like that. Um, being aware of, you know, supplements that you take or things, you know, disguised as healthy, different smoothies and shakes and protein bars and, and things like that. And just make sure you're checking your labels because those artificial sweeteners that are usually hidden in there um, are some of the things that are, are linked more to diabetes um, than just like a plain Coke uh, might be. So just got to pay attention and, and be aware of what you're reaching for. And, and at the end, you know, no one's putting the candy and the sugar in your mouth except for you. So make a wise choice. Yep. Sit back, relax, and uh, drink some green tea. Yes. All this and more in today's episode. We are welcoming into our podcast uh, a very special guest today. And, you know, everybody say hello. Hello. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> That's the best way. We have So, but we're all here. Liam's here. Meg's here. And Dr. Neil is here joining us from Australia. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Um, I'm actually English. Uh, Ooh, snap. Bye-bye. Yes, finally. Someone <laughs> got some support. But I'm Australian at heart. <laughs> Lived there for a long time. Uh, I'm a geographer and I focus on health geography. So principally interested in how chronic disease is distributed across space. So we do what we call health and place research. So, uh, yeah, my, the way I often talk about it is it's it's very simple to do analysis that can identify you've got a disease, chronic disease, type 2 diabetes, that's an issue at a country level, even here in the concept of, say, governance. Our, our aim is to actually look at the distri- distribution at the very detailed level so we can really identify the best locations to intervene for health. So we basically require lots of data. We work with a thing called Geographic Information Systems. It's a specific so- software that's been around in a computer form now, but basically it's a computer form of mapping. So mapping's been around forever. Um, so I like to think that you know we're just carrying on that grand tradition of understanding what's around us. And for us, it's what's around us in relation to health. So in terms of, in terms of Kuwait, I mean, how bad is it? How bad is the Middle East right now? I mean, since the introduction of Western foods in probably the 1970s and 1980s, I'm sure there's been a spike in type 2 diabetes, especially in Kuwait. Um, I see it more or less with uh, the expatriates that come here. You know, within five, six years or 10 years after they stay here, a lot of them develop diabetes. And I'm sure, I'm 100% positive it has to do with the food and the, the change in diet. So, I mean... How how bad is it in the Middle East, just to get your perspective on it, and realistically? It's pretty bad. I think that's fair to say. 
Um, so typically prevalence in Kuwait is around 20, 21%. So to put that in context of, say, the US, the UK, Australia, it's about double. So it is quite significant. Um, I was talking to a researcher uh, at Dasman who was saying that, you know, in one of their studies they had up to half the population that they sampled, just a random sample. The half were either diabetic or, or pre-diabetic. And basically of the number, pretty much the entire population was either overweight or obese. What, do, what um, makes pre-diabetic? Like what would be the, the markers for that? Uh, you, you take a HbA1c, it's a blood measure. It's a kind of a three-month average of your blood sugars. So it's a good marker of what's going on. So, And for many people, they will be diabetic and they just don't know it. Mm. And so, uh, you know, pre-diabetics, their blood sugars are elevated. Um, and without changing their lifestyle, um, they'll go full type 2 diabetic. And depending on, you know, how close they are to becoming type 2 diabetic, depends on really that sedentary lifestyle, poor eating habits. So... You know, you, you mentioned eating, but it's not just eating because, you know, if you eat and you do lots of exercise, you burn up the – if you eat and you don't do any exercise, then basically it just lays down over time, as, as lays down as fat and uh, just causes those problems. I mean, it's a it's a it's just a combination of all those things, you know, overweight, obese, uh, you know, high blood pressure, um, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, they just all come together. And uh, yeah, that's the real issue. It's just a, it's a chronic disease problem. It's not just type 2 diabetes. It's all of those things that cluster. And basically, if you don't do something about it, uh, and I was saying this to someone earlier today, it won't be that long before the children being born will have a shorter life expectation than their parents when they were born. So all of those advances we've made, if you like, in sort of medical technology and life improvement so that you know the the western world sees life expectation for males and females up in the 80s we're moving into the territory where we'll start to reverse that you know we uh, i i haven't we haven't the project's just started in kuwait so we don't have a great deal of of of, of insight i certainly can't provide a lot of insight at this point because we're, we're only just starting but you know in australia where the problem is not as bad we're starting to see type 2 diabetes in kids you know, so instead of it, it used to be known as mature age or mature onset diabetes. Adult onset, is That's it? Right. yeah, yeah. And and you know, so now you can see kids who are pre-diabetic at age twelve. Um, yeah, and so they'll they'll be type two diabetics in their teens. And that's just, uh, yeah, I don't know. To me, that's just terrific. That's the thing that is shocking: is the life expectancy it was longer because of you know advances in medicine, and so it's like we have all these things, and really Western medicine, like. I think the best thing that's come out of that is just trauma care. <laughs> but other than that, I think we're just getting, yeah, we're getting sicker. Um, all the advances that we've had. And, and as you said, the life expectancy is going to drop. Or maybe we're living to that life expectancy, but then how many of those people are hooked up to tubes until they're, you know, until the end? How many are actually living a quality life? That's right. We, yeah. we, we medicate. So, yeah. you know, the response to a lot of these issues is medication. We see that the funding that goes into medical Research in particular goes into you know curing disease or building hospitals and providing that medical care. Um, you know, we work in what you might call health promotion, really. The, the aim for us is to prevent rather than try and come up at some later date and treat. So you know, we're all about identifying, understanding, tailoring interventions to basically create a situation where these kids won't be diabetic in 25 years' time. It's a hard sell, though, isn't it? You go to a politician and say, I've got this great idea, and in 25 years we'll see enormous benefits in the health system. And politicians in there for three years. It's so it's like, what can you do for me now? I'll tell you what, I can build a new hospital, and then I get to open it, and, and I'm famous. I've got the name on the hospital, and that's great. So that's, yeah, that's part of the issue we're up against. And that's, that's repeated all over. That's, you know, someone was saying that to me today. At a meeting, it's what happens to us in Australia, the UK, US, Canada, all those countries. The the long term isn't really viewed. It's all about short term, you know, more hospital beds, more research into medication. You know, big big drug companies, they make a lot of money out of all of those medications that go 
to basically treat all of those you know, high blood pressures, your type 2 diabetics, and so on. So That's what Saadan mentioned last time as well, um, that that's what's going to end up draining the economy is, <laughs> is the um, management aspect of it. So do you know, do you have any information on the numbers of like how much is being spent, you know, in the, in the healthcare on managing diabetes in Kuwait? Or is there any kind of of the financials of how much it's costing the country right now? Do you have any of that within the research or no? Can't do it on Kuwait. I can give you some ideas elsewhere. Yeah. Um, So there was a a meta-analysis done recently. So that's like a big review of um, research on a particular thing. This one was actually looking at the cost savings to the health system for being physically active and eating better. Um, and they, they were basically saying for every dollar you spend in health promotion, you get 8 to $10 back in savings. Um, there was a study uh, uh, done on um, walkability, which was basically saying that walkable suburbs basically reduce cardiovascular disease, and cardiovascular disease being in that whole cluster of things we were just talking about, by about 30%, the risk of cardiovascular disease by 30%. So you know you you put money into doing those things, you get big big savings. In Australia, the the health budget consumes so probably about twenty five percent of the overall budget. But with the forecast of the number of people who are going to be sicker over time, and as you say, they will live, but they will be sick. So they're going to have to be treated. They're going to be medicated, hospitalised, at home care, all of those things. Um, you know, there was a, there's a real fear that the health budget can't sustain all of that um, when all of that sort of comes together. It's a baby boom generation, essentially, the baby boom generation of just this massive number of people flowing through um, and have created, you know, the need for lots of things every time they've arrived at a different stage of their life, you know, schools, universities, jobs, housing, etc. Um, and the, the same thing, you know, they're, they're the ones now who are at that point where, They'll, they'll have health issues, but they'll live longer. Right. And yeah, quality, who knows, but certainly cost. So if it's – I can't imagine that you would spend in Kuwait any less than we would on health. And if we're putting about 25% in and we've got half the prevalence of type 2 diabetes that you've got. It's too much. I'm, I'm guessing <laughs> you spend a fair bit more. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, so uh, – and, and it'll just get worse. It won't get better. With Kuwait being the country that it is and the enormous wealth that we have here, I mean, put politics aside because I, I hate discussing politics. It's like, you know, it's just like a broken record going around. But what can we do? What can people like me do? What can, you know, average average people uh, contribute to fixing this problem? Because it's not just going to be government. It's going to start within the homes. So what can mom and dad do at home? I think that uh, the best thing is being active, eating well and being active. And I think from the point of view of what can you do at home, you can, you can, you can start to, to modify the amount of food that comes out at any gathering, for example. Um, you can bring out water instead of soft drink. You, know, you can ensure that soft drink becomes like you know, an occasional drink, whereas the rest of the time you're drinking things that are not full of sugar. I guess it's quite interesting for me. I come from the UK and there's like a load of different kind of like low calorie alternatives to like your full calorie soft drinks. And I was expecting coming out here like it to be kind of like America in that like there's pretty much like a low calorie iced tea, zero calorie this, zero calorie that. But then the large majority and in most cases in the small shops, there's zero like low calorie alternatives. Uh, so I guess that's kind of like an option for families to kind of making those kind of choices where if a kid doesn't want uh, or he's not going to have water, they're kind of moving them over to a low-calorie Sprite or a low-calorie Coke um, and then hopefully trying to reduce the amount of those that they're drinking in a day is going to help, right? Yeah, I guess the point is to try and stop it in the first place. Yeah, for know, sure. So when, when they're very young, get them used to drinking water and eating fruit. Yeah. You know, rather than drinking soft drinks and eating chocolate and chips and all those other things because, you know, the, it's kind of killing them with kindness, really, yeah. isn't it? I mean, you, you, you want your children to have all the things you didn't have. It's always kind of the way. As a, as a parent, you want your kids to have all the advantages they can possibly have. But putting all that stuff into them is, is really, it's really harming their health long term. You know, you see 
just as I said, that, that the fact that you can see type two diabetics in eleven year old children is that's just scary. It's frightening in in the extreme. Drinking water, being physically active. I mean, those are the, eating well. You know, if you do, don't go to McDonald's every day. You know, go to McDonald's occasionally, not at all. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. I did. <laughs> you know, and 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 uh, try and limit those sorts of things. So instead of having them as the everyday, have them say once a month. Yeah. You know, and make it a part of something that's an earning, you know, like a, a good walk or, a, you know, going out of the park and kick a football around for an hour. And because uh, I've seen the parks have got McDonald's in them. Yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> the gyms. The gyms have the McDonald's. The gyms have McDonald's them. attached to them now. So, yeah. so you know, <laughs> I think, you know, the individuals can do a lot. They can, they can think about their own behaviour. They can also start movements that, that influence people who make policy. And I think that's the other important thing. You know, if, if a whole group of people in a suburb said, we want to walk, but there's nowhere to walk in our suburb, then the municipality would have to take notice. Yeah. We want footpaths. We want trees to shade the footpaths. Right? And we, want, we don't want McDonald's in our park. You know, that's, the, that's the kind of thing. You know, we did some research in Australia on fast food near schools. Uh, which was a replication of some work done earlier um, by another colleague in Canada. Yeah, and, and not only do we see schools and fast food being associated, but we also see schools in lower SES areas having significantly more fast food associations than schools in high socioeconomic areas. So there's a socioeconomic gradient as well. But you know, getting back to that specifics, I think if, if people decide they want something, in the end it'll happen. If people decide they want to walk or they want to ride or, or they want to, they don't want something in their area, it's that community bottom-up approach to change that can make a difference. You know, we can, we can, we always, I think one of the problems we often have is that we always look to the government to solve everything for us. You know, we've got a problem, the government has to solve it for us. And when they don't, we don't do anything about it. It's like, well, you know, the government didn't solve it, what can I do? Well, what you can do individually is basically come together and say, no, no, we want you to do something to help us. We want to walk. We want our kids not to be bombarded with fast food. In the school canteens, we want you to take that rubbish out and put good food and drink in. You know, it's the, it's the, it's the individuals who will come together as a, as collectively to enact those changes. And I think, you know, we, we need to think like that rather than say, oh, you know, we have a problem, the medical professional solve it for us by giving us drugs or the government will solve it for us how i'm not sure because really um the government can make better built environments they can improve the suburbs you know they can have footpaths and trees for shade you know they can separate the the those walking trails from the freeways you know they can provide opportunities for getting safely across roads so that people can walk you know, this lovely park, what's the park called? Um, El Shahid. El Shahid Park. Yeah. Wouldn't that be fabulous if it went all the way around from coast to coast? So instead of just being a piece of crescent in the middle, it went all the way to the bay on that side and all the way on that side. Well, it would be fabulous if it was closer to residential areas. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like yeah. Rather than just right next yeah. to the city. Yeah. But if it, if, it connected so, to the, yeah. if it connected to the coast You'd have a lot and then of you've access. got all of that walking and riding yeah. capability on the coast, you can park down. Yeah, and ride your bike up into the park, do something. Yeah, ride back down, walk. Yeah, so there are things like that that can be done as well. The thinking about the built environment and infrastructure that basically helps people to physically. That's one. Of, that's one of the areas we do a lot of work in, and that is the built environment. We we usually we characterise the environment as being walk supportive or not, and and then we look at the associations between those locations where walking or being physically active has a higher score, and then we associate that with health outcomes. And the research pretty much everywhere around has found that areas that have better infrastructure enabling people have less risk of those chronic diseases. And it's that whole thing. And it's also you know, changing social norms. People will do what people around them do. So if you live in an area that is full of obese people, and you're overweight, you'll think you're looking pretty good. And you won't really look at it and go, I need to do something about it. But if you live in an area where people are pretty thin and you're overweight, you're going to start thinking, I don't look the same as everyone else. Pretty much need to do something about this. 
and that's how it happens. So, you know, that's another area that we've done work in, looking at how social norms do in fact change those outcomes. And so, yeah, they're, they're all things that can be can be worked on as well, aren't they? I mean, you think social norms are really just people's perceptions of what's going on. If you can modify people's perceptions of things, you can change those behaviours, and they'll come from individuals coming together. Yeah, so that the more walking movement, you know, that starts to get bigger. People want the wall, the mall walkers, and mall's a funny term for me because we call them shopping centres, but mall walkers, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I'm sure they would love to walk outside if they could as well, yeah. you know, if there were opportunities. And yeah, so, I think people people wait until winter here, and as soon as winter hits, they can't wait to get outside. So, yeah. like, the, I think the desire is there, yeah. um, but they just need something that's kind of a little bit more accessible for around the year. Yeah. Um, and I have people who, like clients who will go away, um, they'll go on holiday to Italy or wherever, and they, they come back and they're slimmer. Yeah. And they're like, how did this even happen? I went away, I ate whatever I wanted, I drank whatever I wanted, and like I, I feel better. Step counts are way higher. Yeah, and yeah. I was like, well, you're probably walking you between the shops, and yeah. you're going this, and you're going walking to the, the pizza yeah. place, and you're kind of like being out and about, and you're in fresh air. And if you did yeah. go somewhere, you probably caught a bus or a train. Yeah. Yeah, and you walked to it. So, you know, the classic concept of a bus is a walk interrupted. Yeah. You walk to the bus stop, you get on the bus, you get off and you walk to the other side. Um, So there are a lot of challenges in Kuwait. I think, you know, from this is my second visit now. So the project started about six months ago. We came out a few months before the project officially started. And, you know, obviously the climate's problem. You know, I don't think anyone would, would say, hey, you've got to get out there and jog at five degrees. I think most of us would. You might jog and then die. Um, certainly not. You have to conducive. go at like four or five in the morning. I'll show you Park is where I used to do yeah, that, yeah. but it's it's a short time frame. Yeah. <laughs> but you also don't really have um, public transport, right? Yeah. So you everyone has to drive. You know, the the entire Kuwait is built around people driving everywhere. You know, it's all big freeways, uh, and then suburbs in between and, and road systems that are all, you know, four, two lanes, four lanes, six lanes, eight lanes. And that makes it very hard. It's, it, it, it's not a, a pedestrian-friendly environment. You don't walk out of your, your door and think, yeah, I think I might walk into the city today. It's not just, just not going to happen. And, and because there's not a great uh, infrastructure for public transport, it doesn't happen either. You know, imagine if there was a uh, – I mean, we, we often look at the European cities and they're so good because – they they happened a long time ago before the car, yeah. And so they connected and they put public transport in because there was no other way for people to get around, and they kept it. And so it's used now as much as it was before. And in some of the cities, you know, they stop a lot of the traffic inside the old city areas so that you have to walk around and to get to it, you get on the bus or a tram or a train. And you know that those sorts of things. You know, if, if Kuwait was thinking infrastructure spend then public transport would be a great, you know, would be a great option. You know, trams that enable people to basically get on the tram, rip into the city. Yeah, That's, the solution has been more roads. And I think I, yeah, I heard yeah. someone, uh, how did they describe it? said, building more roads to fix the, the traffic problem in Kuwait is like giving a, a fat guy a bigger belt to fix his weight problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's exactly what it that's is. exactly right. And yeah. they'll, they'll fill up as fast as you build them. Right. You know, as fast as you add a lane, it fills up. It's a bit just like fluid dynamics, you know. You've got a pipe of any diameter and you force water into it, you know, and you too much water, it jumps out the back, you make the pipe bigger, and then as soon as the pressure builds up again, it just jumps out the back, right. you know. It's the same thing with roads. You keep adding lanes whilst people are still adding more and more cars, and the net result's always going to be the same. It's congestion. You know, you get a short-term fix, and then it's a need to build more lanes. Yeah, Who would a, you say the role model is in the uh, Middle East in terms of what they're doing right? I mean, we all know it's probably Dubai, but in general, you know, we know how bad Kuwait is. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm a Kuwaiti. I understand it. I agree with it. But who's the role model? Who's someone that we can kind of um, imitate, so to speak? I mean, is it Amman? Is it Qatar? Is it... I mean, Dubai's well well more advanced than us. Is it Abu Dhabi, possibly? I mean, Dubai just recently did the Fit 30, so it's like, you know, it's 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 almost uh, it's tough for us because legislation and, you know, politics and the red tape kills us. But who could we imitate, maybe even from a private sector uh, perspective, 
versus instead of the government perspective, because private sector really doesn't do much here in terms of supporting the community and social awareness. I mean, you see it in the States, McDonald's. Yeah, as bad as they are, but they'll, you know, they'll put up some parks. You know, there, there's there's a place for kids to go and play. Yeah, it's 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 the, the yeah, it's, it's tough. But here we don't have it in Kuwait. So what can who can we look at and who can we help hold accountable besides the government and ourselves? Yeah, very tough questions. I don't know enough about the Gulf yet. What I've seen so far, UAE definitely does well. Uh, they've definitely got programs and they've thought about programs for kids and, and healthy eating in schools and so on. Um, anyway, I think the point is that there's a lot that's happening all over the world and it might not just be something that's happening in the Gulf that's worth looking at into what's happening elsewhere that, that might be adapted. I mean, healthy eating in school canteens is, is widespread across many, many countries. Um, the concept of better built environments is common across. So I think that is what's happening in some areas as well as they start to think about building new urban areas. Instead of just building them in the old model, they start to think about parks and walk and inner connectivity. Um, but, I, but I still think you know the, the, one of the big problems you have here in Kuwait is that you've got this urban infrastructure that's all car. You know, it's all road, suburbs, big roads, suburbs, big roads. And you know, the, t- to get something happening in that space, I think it's going to be critical at some point. I mean, there are, I know there are a couple of smart or healthy cities on the on the being worked on here now, and they'll be good, and they'll be good internally, and so people will have a better opportunity in their suburb to be more active. And I think that's that's as good a start as you can get. Really, if you can improve the within suburb in the first instance, and then the between suburb at a later point. But, you know, you really need to make that change within those suburbs. I think suburbs at the moment still have just a car focus. As we said, there are, there are no footpaths. You know, there are no shade trees. So if you did want to walk from your shop, sorry, from your house to the co-op, you'd just have to walk on the road. And in my short time here, walking on the road would scare me. I had to cross a road here the other day when we were out looking at something and there was a pedestrian crossing, but they don't work the way I'm used to. No, it's, no. Yeah, it's, it's kind of just there. Yeah. Well, the, if there's no camera at the traffic light, then green, or sorry, red just means like go go extremely fast. <laughs> and so go it's like green actually means slow down to avoid anybody who's following the red. <laughs> there's, there's one thing I've noticed that really puzzles me. The people are very polite. You know, when you're walking around, everyone's really polite. When you're walking. That's right. That's, just, <laughs> that's exactly the point. People are courteous, polite, <laughs> but as soon as they get in the car, rude. it just changes. It's like, I don't know why. Uh, it, it happens everywhere. It's not just here. But it's uh, it's one of those things that I, I think is another one of those things that we need to think about. That is, why can we be polite and pleasant to each other when we're walking around and looking each other in the eye, but as soon as we get into the car, the mindset, it's every person for themselves. Yeah, the mindset is totally different. I think when you're out for a walk, there's some intention there of you know what you're doing out there. When you're in the car, it's this, this, mindset of my time's more important than yours and everybody just it's just that belief in action is what you see on the roads yeah 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 so i think you know, the the thing is that we'll be coming back from time to time and it would be great for us to have you know opportunities in the future where we can really start talking about things that we've researched and talk about real results i mean at the moment we we know there's a problem you know type 2 diabetes diabetes uh, here is very serious there's a lot of it and looking at the information we've got in front of us at the moment, we can see that the urban infrastructure is not great. Yeah. The thing for us now is to start doing the research that identifies how much that impacts on the, the prevalence of type 2 diabetes and then start to think about those things that might be done based on evidence. You know, Having said that, I still, as I said, I'm a firm believer in people basically deciding for themselves that they want something better and, and making it happen. Nothing nothing works better than people power in the end. You know, people want it, it'll happen. Because the politicians in the end take note. As soon as you've got enough people that's going to influence voting, it starts to influence outcomes. Well, on the flip side, that's exactly what's happened now. As we talk about it being kind of a social disease of the people that are around you, you're going to see that. And it's gotten enough attention to where now something is being done. So exactly that. If enough people come together on the right side of it, which would be being active and being healthy then, yeah, it can spark a different kind of a recognition, new statistics for Kuwait and new, I mean, a lot of Kuwaitis are very proud 
you know, to be Kuwaiti. Um, but giving that maybe a little bit of a, of a different meaning of, you know, maybe setting a standard. They, maybe they can be the one the rest of the Gulf looks to. Yeah. I'm, I'm proud to be a Kuwaiti, but this conversation sucks, to be honest <laughs> with you. I mean, it's definitely a conversation that needs to be had. But as from a Kuwaiti perspective, I'm, I'm terrified right now. Like, I'm not going to lie. I'm deathly terrified of the impact of what you're saying this all could have on Kuwait in about 15 to 20 years when my son's generation, you know, comes to and gets into the working force. And all of a sudden now it's, you know, hey, hey, we have no money left because we've been spending it all on, you know, diabetes, heart health, because we couldn't smarten up and just eat the right foods and just move around a little bit more. I mean, for you, it must suck to see this as statistics. You know, I've, I've seen it in family. I, I see it in family. I see the ob- obesity. And, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, a lot of people around me were not fit, but they were in better health. Now it's just, it's, it's blown up and I'm, I'm terrified. How does it, how do you feel when you see these stats blowing up globally and in your home country? Like, how does it make you feel? The sign. Yeah, it's a, and it is, it is, it is terrifying because you think that the legacy we're leaving is not one of eating well and being physically active. You know, we, we have 75 inch televisions and PlayStations and iPads, all those things that cause the distractions and the, the, the legacy we leave is not one that promotes even a concept in most families that health is important. And because we've got, as I said before, because we've got such high rates of obesity and overweight, what people see next door looks normal. So they don't think in the sense that, oh, there's something wrong, we're not healthy, because what they see around them is that that's what they see. It, it's their norm. It's, it, it's No one's being incredibly active and no one's eating well. And, and uh, there has to be a role for government in the end, though. I mean, the sugar tax in the UK recently is the, the classic case. You know, we tried to get it in Australia as well, but, you know, the big companies always push back and talk about, no, we'll do it. You know, we'll monitor ourselves, mm. um, which is not Never dissimilar. Works. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, there has to be some top-down intervention on on what foods cost in some respects. I mean, sometimes it's the cost that can be the the driver for changing behaviours. If you know, sugary drinks are significantly more than water, then you know it becomes a, an option that people will consider. Because you, you look at um, the price of bottled water. I'm not sure here what it sits like, but you know, in Australia, it costs more for a litre of water than it does for a litre of petrol when you buy it in the shop. It's just so so expensive. But uh, you know, a bottle of Coke yeah. comes in at you know like a dollar twenty five. Cheaper, yeah. yeah, much much cheaper, and and that's you know like a one point seven five or two liters of Coke is under two dollars, and it's three dollars fifty for five hundred milliliters of water. It's not right. Yeah. No, no. So uh, yeah, so there's a, there are there are those issues around um, guidelines, and we we've, we've been talking with the um, public authority for food and nutrition about um, food classifications and nutrition guidelines because you need those in place as well. That'll be like in schools and in yeah. hospitals and well, it, just as a yeah. just in the, for the population. Okay. Now you talk about your food pyramid. Yeah. You know, and and countries have you know food guidelines about you know. So we talk about eating. Um, bound to get this wrong. Four or five fruits a day and uh, seven veggies. I think it is it's probably too much. But just I usually say like eight to ten, like a combo just a, of just of like food. a handful yeah. of. A, of that is the one veg, so you know you have kind of five or six of those with your meal, and so you, the the guidelines propose what is a healthy diet that you can aim for to basically reduce that calorie intake, and those are the sort of things that are important. You do you do need something like that that you can point to. Schools is the great place. Yeah, yeah. I think for, kids for, take stuff for on, me. That's they? where that's where it starts. Like schools, schools. Uh, high schools, and everything like that. Because mm. I mean, I know even in the UK, I remember being taught things about nutrition when I was starting, starting to do sport and everything. I would take that information home. I'd tell my mum. She'd ask me what I learned at school today, and I'd be like, Ah, oh, learn about this. 
And she'd be like, oh, really? Uh, yeah, I didn't know that. Okay, like we're going to start changing this bits and this bits because obviously for parents, it's kind of they're just doing what they already know. Um, and so then they're not actually going to school and learning anything new, but the kids are, are learning stuff and they're open to learning things as well. They're, and uh, if they're, I know I find that with the, my clients as well, that if I'm teaching them stuff and then a couple of months later they'll come back and they say, oh, my mom started going to the gym or my dad started going to the gym or my brother, or my older brother. Um, like they like see what you're doing or we see the videos that I take for, of them and they want to do more. And so it's kind of like the younger guys who need that influence because they're yeah. more open to it. They see they're, they're the ones who are seeing Western cultures and seeing the shape that they are and then realizing that it's not normal to be this overweight and it's not normal to be that uncomfortable when you're sleeping and it's not normal to kind of struggle to walk upstairs. It's right. And it's not normal to drive a car everywhere. Yeah. Like no other city in the world does drive a car as much. So it's like kind of like they, they're the ones who are seeing that a lot more. Um, and so I, I know from, from my perspective, when I get to work with someone who's younger, like kind of helping them to just understand like what's actually going on in the grand scheme of things, I know is helping like the wider family when they get home. Um, and even that is sometimes a barrier as well, because that wider family is sometimes like trying to feed them all the time. Like you said about, um, the amount of food that they have at gatherings and things like that. Yeah. And then if those guys are choosing like, Hey, I'm just going to have a chicken leg and some of this vegetable stuff and a little bit of rice. Then when the, uh, the kanafa comes out, then they're like, no, I'm okay. Thank you. And then the rest of the family's like, what are you doing? Why? Like have some kanafa. You're just a little bit. And then they have a little bit. Then like, Oh, just a little bit more. And they're like, well, they actually don't want any, but they're like their family who they trust and they love. And everything is, is trying to help them in their way, but actually it's killing them ultimately. That's one of the biggest habits that I have a hard time with my clients is differentiating between I need to eat and I should eat and I want to eat. And it's that should eat. And it's at that family gathering. It's like everybody else is eating. I feel like I should. But you have to have the kanafa with like 15 <laughs> tablespoons of the sugar, the sugar on syrup. it. And, you know, you got to get the, the, the cream on there and then you got to have the piece of cake afterwards. And then you got to have your tea with what my dad likes is four sugars, which is way too much for a 60 year old man. Yeah, dad, I'm sorry. Anybody. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, no, no. I mean, like, I've, I've seen my father. He'll, like, just yeah. douse his tea with yeah. sugar. And a lot, of, a lot of Kuwaiti families do that. You would not believe. Like, fasting is really good. Ramadan is supposed to be a great month. You're supposed to cleanse the body a little bit. It's supposed to be a healthy month. And you would not believe the amount of junk that people will eat after futur, you'll have futur. It will be mainly like a teshriba dish or, you know, whatever your family serves. It's, it's based on your family's tradition. But as soon as you finish, you go out, you're already full. And then you're just, you know, they're serving up the cake and it's the kanafa. And then it's the, the what's it called? Oh, the little dumpling things with the uh, sugar sauce all over it. It's, it's, it's insane. It's, uh, it's just unbelievable. And I mean, on that note, what can you teach us or what takeaways can you give all the listeners out there of what to do? Because we probably have some teachers that are listening to this. And I believe that we are all, you know, everyone educates the younger generation. So how can we do things a little bit better? You know, just the small things. What are some of the little things that you've seen uh, globally and that we can implement here? Well, I think that as I said before, getting schools to move to healthy canteens is an important thing. So the food and drink that's available at the school is modified so that it's healthy. Education about healthy eating and the importance of it and education about the importance of being physically active. Because, you know, as you say, children take messages on very, very seriously, especially in the younger ages, and they will take those messages home. They will say that, you know, we learnt today that we're not physically active, you know, we'll die younger, you know. And if we don't eat properly, you know, we, we, we're, we're going to basically get diseases that will make our life shorter, you know. Obviously, you don't use those scare tactics. You have to be very clever about it. Um, you've got to sell the message in a good way. And one thing that when you were talking about, I was thinking, does school have uh, act? Physical activity programs? Is that part of schooling? Government school? Um, no. <laughs> it's they, you know, like, well, back in my day, it was you take a soccer ball, throw it out, and say, here you go, this is PE class. And I'm pretty sure it's still along those same lines. But there are other schools 
Um, and I will give them a shout out because they're awesome at this, like ASK. They have probably one of the best uh, athletics programs for a high school in Kuwait. And they've always been kind of the leader and, you know, with the school system. But I mean, physical education, it's not, you know, learning to climb a rope or some of the things that we probably did as kids. You know, I know in the States, Meg. You know, we never did rope climbing. You guys never did rope no. climbing? Really? <laughs> no, our gym class honestly was pretty pathetic, but it was an hour that was required you know, of the day. And I was, but I was an athlete though, but that was the other thing too. Like gym class might've been a little off, but like everybody played a sport, like as a kid, like you, I don't know, you did softball, you did volleyball, you did swimming, you did something like we all learned how to swim. Um, like it's just, you did something, you rode your bike around, you know, exactly all of that. So, um, I mean, our gym class, it was like learning how to play different sports, but it wasn't like any real physical skill test of any. I mean, I was pretty young, but I always remember there was always a rope there, you know, and like, you know, the, there's sports. Fun Here, memories of climbing a rope. <laughs> I know, right? Fun memories right? of climbing a rope. But there, there, there are no sports here for kids. I mean, even, you know, you'll have baseball. I mean, I've coached baseball for 12 years or 10 years or however long it's been since like 2005. And they play twice a week. That is not enough exercise for a child. Twice a week is not enough for a kid. And over the years, I've seen it get progressively worse. You know, that, that, that not just the athleticism, but just kids are just way out of shape and they've got upper cross going on and they, they can't even do a squat. So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think it, sometimes the kids here are given too much choice. I remember when I was, I was in uh, school, my mom would take me to, take me to club. She'd be like, you're going to swimming club. I hate a swimming club, but she'd take me like twice a week. She'd be like, you're going, you're going. But that's the point. You're right. Yeah. 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 So like, I think sometimes like, again, we came back to uh, the kids, the parents trying to give their kids everything they didn't have. And maybe they didn't have any choice before. And so they're kind of give, trying to give them as much choice as possible. But now actually when it comes to sport and it comes to health, like they should be going, you're going to go. Like you're going to thank me for it eventually. Like just go. You're going to enjoy it. If you don't enjoy that, We'll take you to something you you will you will enjoy, but you're gonna do some sort of physical you have activity. To do something. And my mom will love that. It's like she listens to it, but to this podcast and she'll love me remembering that. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember her going, like you like whatever you wanna find, like we will find something for you, but you're gonna do physical activity. And obviously now, like I thank her massively for yeah. it. But um like it was even when I was uh, in school, like I was doing club rugby, so that was two two practices a week. Then it was um <laughs> yeah, and then <laughs> and then it was um like then school rugby was two practices a week and one game and then yeah, so I had ultimately like six two two games of rugby, like eighty minutes, and then you had like four practices as well, and then you had your teacher going, Okay, like you're fifteen, sixteen, you should start getting into the gym a couple of times a week. And ultimately, then you're working out like eight, nine times a week. Um, and you look at like what we think of like the top CrossFitters now, they're training eight, nine times a week. Yeah. And so it's not kind of something that's abnormal. It's just moving around and throwing a, throwing a ball around, kicking a football, cycling to the football, cycling to school, whatever it is, um, and just trying to move more is, is a massive thing. And I think it needs to come from parents to encourage it and then allow it. But then it needs to come from the kids to be able to kind of like take that back and uh, and understand it as well. Yeah, I mean that that's where that uh, concept guideline comes in. You know, the thirty minutes a day walking is kind of a, one hour's great, but thirty minutes it doesn't have to be a one go either. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can do one hour a day that's made up of you know ten minutes here, ten minutes there, cumulatively. You get that one hour in. Yeah, and you know maybe we start using things like the Garmin and the Fitbit as an incentive for kids to. Aim for ten thousand steps a day because ten thousand steps is kind of the, of the is the guideline as well. You get ten thousand steps in a day. You've basically reached that requirement of physical activity level for the day. I give my clients eight to fifteen as their goal, and it's like it is like a game, you know, and just like how well they could get with it. And even for myself, it's looking at that. And I don't use a a Fitbit or anything yet, but um, on my phone, I'll track track some stuff, and it is it gets like a little bit of a. A fun game to like yeah. how far did you well, get and how many miles I get and how long did it take me <laughs> there's a system set up in western australia that that um encourages kids to get to enroll their school in these programs right. for cycling and walking and then as they in, enroll other students in the school into it their activity gets logged and it's kind of like a league table of fitness and activity in the school and it creates competition and yeah, competition drives people. More kids come in; they they want to. So when they walk, those steps go in. Or if they ride their bike to school, that distance 
goes into the system and it just builds up. Uh, they've got companies involved as well, so you get companies. So, you know, there's, you, ha- you have to be careful that, you, you know, you don't focus on sport in, in the sense because a lot of kids don't like sport and, and you'll actually stop them because if it's, if it's about sport, you know, some kids will never be good at sport no matter what you do. Um, but we want them to be physically active, so that's why, you know, talking about things like walking, pretty much everyone can walk. And that walking, um, in its own right, you know, if someone walks for that half hour, one hour a day, they will start to feel the, the benefits to their health relatively quickly. You know, as you say, they'll be able to walk up the stairs without being breathless. They'll suddenly realise that the notch on the belt goes in. Yeah. You know, it's because it's just that it's that benefit that accrues with doing it every day. Of course, it then gets easier to do every day. So with kids, you know, getting them to do half an hour a day of some kind of physical activity and you know, walking around the school, walking. Yeah. So with the, um, going back to some of the research that you guys have done in Australia and you talked about the Aboriginal communities and knowing that, you know, in Kuwait we're dealing with a, a deep cultural, um, you know, social norm um, and the Aboriginal community is quite common with that. Um, how, what's the... Uh, like approach, I guess that you guys have had through the research of that of, of figuring out what are the good and bad sides of that of where you're finding it within those communities, or how are you trying to educate there? Does it start with the kids there as well? Does it start with the families? Does it or the parents? Or what's kind of been the oh, the lot, research on there? It's a lot harder. I mean, mm. you're talking about the uh, the First Nations people essentially. So you know, you talk about massive shifts in in what the culture was versus kind of what's been forced on them, you know. Okay, and, yeah. and so it's, uh, you know, I mean, the real problem in the Indigenous communities is that, you know, I mean, I talk about having a life expectation of 80-odd years, but for Indigenous it's about 25 years less. Yeah. Um, and and, and it's, it's, a hard, it's the hardest thing to research by far because it's ethically it's difficult because most people... A lot of the research is always about being negative. You know, they want to just identify all those bad things and then they want to publicise the bad things because they want to embarrass the government as well. So working in Indigenous communities is particularly difficult. You know, we, we're trying to do the opposite of that and identify the good communities to improve the bad communities. That's um, great. Yeah. And so, you know, because it's the good stories that will usually work in the long run. You keep telling people negative things and they just believe all those negative things, you know, everyone's told all the time they're stupid, they start to believe it. If you tell people that, you know, they're not stupid, then they'll achieve a lot more. It's the same in health. You know, if you, you can identify those things about the communities that are working, you know, it might be governance, it might be the way the, the, the shop stocks its shelves, it might be the products they sell, and then you can start to introduce those models into other communities and slowly you can improve. Um, I think what nothing, I th- nothing happens quickly, though. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, the, the whole point with with research is really building sufficient evidence to get that evidence base to enact some change. You know, we talked about walkability in the built environment. You know, research in that area has been going on for probably 15 or 16 years. Oh, wow. It's only in the last few years we're starting to see significant gains in urban planning and urban planners talking about, you know, constructing environments that are walkable and more healthy, you know, providing sufficient open spaces for people to go to connectivity for them. So there's you know, you have a park, but you don't have to drive to it. You can walk to it. Um, and, yeah, it's 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 about identifying the things that are good in the areas that are doing better and trying to see how you can improve some of the areas that aren't doing so well. I like that approach a lot. It's the same thing when you talk about the mindset of, like, if you're constantly telling yourself that you're stupid or whatever and it's always going to be that way. I think it's the same thing applies with, like, aging. And we've kind of got this belief, too, that aging is just supposed to be hard and difficult and I've worked in my life and so I should be able to eat these things and not, you know, do anything. I've worked already, you know, kind of that retirement thing. I see that with some people. And so it's a, I think kind of building that mindset from the kids up of like, you can carry this on into late life and not end your life. 
connected to tubes and on medications and feeling yeah. good. Like aging doesn't have to mean. It's been a deep like conversation happy. tonight. Yeah. It's been a very deep conversation and yeah. thank you so much. And whatever you need from us later on, when you come back here, I'd love to have you on again. Um, I think we'd all be interested to see what your, your findings are with Kuwait. And if there's anything at all you need, like just please don't even hesitate. I am definitely willing to do anything to help my community. Hands down. Yeah, it's, it's, that's what it's about. That's what this is all about right here. We want to bring great minds to the table so we can hear from them and understand and get a better understanding of it. So thank you very right, much. Get your block to be the fittest block. Yeah, yeah. Get my block. Of the, yeah. That's actually a great idea. You it know is a what? good idea. Yeah. It's a, that's a good well, idea. Is that with the people in Kuwait already about, you know, those Diwani Air meetings? Yeah. yeah. Let's turn them into sporting events. Yeah. Let's have, you know, competitions between them. So instead of just sitting around talking and eating, let's make them indoor soccer or something. They're going to turn the PlayStation on. All right. <laughs> They'll turn the PlayStation on. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> PlayStation what if, even if they just eliminated, <laughs> so as you said, even if they just made their beverages, you know, different or some of their snacks different, you could even have a competition that way without even. But it, it goes back to what you guys were saying earlier with, you know, it's, it's a, it's a young mindset. When you instill these behaviors from a young age, it sticks with you for the rest of your life. I mean, look, my, my parents, I was drinking Pepsi at the age of like five, probably, you know, whereas my kid, you know, DJ, if you say, do you want a Pepsi? He'll say, no, there's too much sugar in it. And he'll ask, he'll say, daddy, why is she drinking Pepsi or Coca-Cola? And I'm like, well, buddy, everyone, you know, adults make their own choices. And it's, it's, it's tough. As a parent, it is difficult to get the physical activity in for your child. I mean, Liam saw me earlier today. I had my kid on the scooter. He had gymnastics before that. He, you know, had a picnic at school. So he was outside running around playing hide to go seek. He's got swimming twice a week. I try to keep the kid going, you know, because I know when I came to Kuwait, when I moved over here after the invasion, I, I like just blew up like a balloon and, you know, thank God, like I smartened up at the age of 34, 33. But, you know, it's been a deep talk, man. It's been really deep. <laughs> so thank, thank you. you so much. For thank knowing. you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. You can also find us on Instagram at The Project Kuwait. Thank you and join us next time.